Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. This is Spencer, and I'm here with my partners in literary crime, BJ and Sarah. How are y'all doing? Doing pretty well. It's so good to hear your dulcet tones, Spencer. (laughs) If only more judges agreed with you. Um, We're we're back for another episode discussing a very different kind of uh, novella than what we've read previously. Sarah, you were the one who recommended this. What can you tell us? What, what can you tell us it is, and what can you tell us about it? Um, so it's an interesting little novella by an author, um, Nede Okorafor, who, as I mentioned in the last podcast, is a Nigerian-American author who has been getting a lot of traction recently. She does a variety of different of different things. Um, she does some sci-fi. She does a lot of sort of magical realism. She does a little bit of horror and a little bit of fantasy. All of what she does is in some ways kind of tied into a kind of more traditional African cosmology in some way, um, although to different extents. In her sci-fi works, it gets um, much more kind of twisted into a new form, but in some of her more magical realism forms, it gets kind of transplanted whole hog. So there are a number of different ways in which she really kind of functions. This, I would say, is probably one of her more sci-fi-y things that she, that I have read anyway. Um, as, and, as a, yeah. As a result of this and a few other science fiction works that she's come out with, she's really become one of the patron saints of what's called the Afrofuturist movement, from what I've read about it. Um, as you said, she's incredibly diverse in terms of what she, the various genres that she writes in, but always kind of tying back to a key theme of bringing various um, aspects of African culture and various African themes to whatever genre she's exploring. Yeah, and I think that there are different ways to kind of think about Afrofuturism and what that means. I mean, we could look back to somebody like Octavia Butler um, and some of her sci-fi that she did as also a form of Afrofuturism that is like more more U.S.-based, more African-American-based, as opposed to a kind of African-centric Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah, um, I I think that this was a very interesting um, foray into that genre, um, and I guess it's not something that I've had a lot of experience with, and so I was excited to, uh, I ended up listening to this, and it's kind of funny because I guess I'm contrasting this with um, N.K. Jameson. Um, who we are planning on reading. Yes, who we are very definitely planning on reading. And so um, I literally, you know, in the past week or two, just finished uh, the first in her trilogy. And so I guess I am holding uh, this novella up to that backdrop um, because pretty much all of the other sci-fi and fantasy writers, as far as I know, and uh, are, you know, coming from a very similar space, like Heinlein and Asimov and Sanderson and um, uh, C.S. Friedman and, and that the group of people who are mostly American and or UK based. And so it's a very different flavor um, mm-hmm. to to bring to to this uh, genre. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I sort of learned, I listened to um, Nede Okorafor's TED Talk today, and she talks about the type of sci-fi that she does as really a different type of sci-fi. And 
in that talk she uses, which is, I think we will find out somewhat apropos of this story itself, the octopus analogy, where octopus intelligence is like a very high level type of intelligence that has like allows certain things to happen, but it has come from a foundation that is completely different and came from another place than sort of human intelligence. Um, And so when she talks about kind of what Afrofuturism and the type of sci-fi that she is writing is supposed to do, it may be getting to the same place um, or getting to a certain type of place, but it is meant to be happening in a very different way. And I think that shines, well, we'll get into it as we talk about the story, but I think that shines through very much with this, of where, in terms of the overall plotting of it, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It fits many aspects that are very traditional to the genre and very traditional to the hero's journey. But it's intentionally trying to tell those from a very unique perspective and bringing in various aspects of various cultures that otherwise are not very commonly represented in this genre. Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of overarching plot of the novel has to do with this kind of liminal transitional space, right? We start from one very solid place and we get to one, what we assume is a very solid place, but in the middle, there's all of this kind of like transitional squidgy other stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I see a lot of the transitional stuff as, um, I'm a, well, I, I feel a little bit bad about this appellation, but very YA, where mm-hmm. it's a young girl and the perils of leaving home um, and the difficulties of leaving home and leaving your family behind, coupled with the star pupil, the, the best and the brightest, um, going off to hone her craft and you know becoming the best that ever was. Um, Well, and I don't know that you should feel bad about that um, because like a lot of her work has been YA or specifically children's books. And I'm not entirely certain that this is not meant to be YA in some way, shape or form. Right. Um, I mean, in her acknowledgments at the end, which I'm trying to get to, um, (laughs) she she thanks her daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for coming up with the plot of this novella. And I think, you know, we shouldn't bury the lead. Like, all of us found the plot not particular, like the plot itself not particularly compelling. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there were definitely aspects of her development things that, or Binti's development and the things that Binti talked about that just had that feeling of young girl and what's going through her head. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a lot more. Um, and, I guess I wanted more out of it. Um, and because, because we chose this and I think we'll, we'll definitely do more authors, more, you know, female and and non-white authors that I want that perspective. And that's what I was looking for. And I feel like I didn't get it as much as I wanted. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we will talk about, kind of other options I think when we get to our what we're reading next but I wanted to because I because I was the person who recommended this um (laughs) with an asterisk that I had not yet read it um but wanted to read it and wanted to take this opportunity to do so 
I, I certainly found it less compelling than I have, I have found other works that I've read by her. But I also think that um, many of her short stories, like that that type of medium seems to, excuse me, seems to suit her more. Mm-hmm. And the plotting works better because they are more of these sort of, sh- sort of snapshots, which is what she seemed to be trying to do with this novella. The snaps... The snapshots, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time saying that, um, don't really seem to hang together particularly well. Yeah. No, it almost felt like to me that she had a short story in mind and was either encouraged or decided to stretch it out into a novella. But as a result of it, the plot doesn't hang it all together. It doesn't connect the various key points that she wants to make. Um, and as a result of it, I had a rather hard time getting into it. Uh, but I mean, let's let's introduce what this story is really about. The key subject of this story, the key thing that everything revolves around, that renders most of the universe and other thing, other things around it almost window dressing, is our main character. Benty is the subject of this, is the central point of this, and this is very much a kind of slice of life of the story that the story and journey that she is going on. Very much the very earliest of arc of whatever hero's journey she's accomplishing because in some ways she is setting off to go find the teacher upon the hill rather than um that coming apart part of the early part of the story to help her overcome a problem but what can we say about where she is coming from and who she is because i think that's one of the most unique things that this uh, novella brings to bear so i think it's interesting that you relate this to the hero's journey and that she's looking for um, the wise person to continue her on her journey because she sets off for that. She doesn't, act, doesn't actually work that way though. You're right. But it, when we, when she talks about her history, she's already completed presumably a, essentially a hero's journey because she talks about her father being the best crafter of astrolapes. And he's taught her everything he knows, basically, and she's set to uh, take over his business and carry on the family tradition and name and combines her uh, magical powers that she gets from her mother with the magical manufacturing that she gets from her father and is set to create, you know, the best and most magical and wonderful astrolabes that the world has ever seen. And then at some point, she took some exam of some sort and got a full ride scholarship to, let's call it Oxford of some other planet, and has basically said, well, it's super cool that I could be like the best possible uh, person in my tribe and town and maybe the surrounding area, but I'm going to go there because reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that I think that part of that is true. I think I am not convinced of the idea that she would have been slotted in to take over her father's business. I mean, she is coming from a place where like the culture is that she gets married and does that thing. Well, yes, but it's already it already says that she's started she's produced her own astrolabe, I believe. And It does. And I thought it it did mention that she was going to either take over her for her father or something else because her other siblings, while casually mentioned, basically they seem to be doing other things. The book kind of 
I think it's almost a point of conflict in terms of what it's describing her leaving behind here. Where they talk about, as you said, that she's incredibly mathematically and mechanically accomplished. She's already designed her technology. She has this just miracle of mathematical understanding that borders on connecting to the harmony of the universe in an almost magical kind of way. But when she describes what she's losing and when she's going, the first thing that jumps in her head is, no one will want to marry me now. So there's right, just an yeah. odd, odd mix of modern and traditional that they're describing as being part of her culture, where she's seemingly her father's heir apparent. He's trained her in all aspects of this, but she's still expected to follow a very traditional gender role with the society itself, and she fully expects that that would be for her if she remained behind. I'm not sure which one they're really... I don't know if these necessarily conflict or not, but they come across that way in my mind. Yeah, and- Yeah, they do to me as well. I'm not sure that... I think to your to your point, PJ, there is potentially some sort of universe in which he could have taken over this shop and been married at the same time, but I, it didn't present that way to me. Okay, yeah, I guess I completely agree with you that the understanding that I have of the culture is that she would be married off. And I mm-hmm. think that was also conflicting with, as Spencer said, her upbringing and basically her father was passing on the mantle and... Um, there are a number of other times in the story that it's brought up that, you know, X would ruin her chances of getting married and Y would ruin her chances of getting married. And it seemed like a weird throwback that didn't fit with everything else in the in the story. In, I mean, let's set this up from, from the very beginning so we can go from there. Because a couple points I want to make about how, she portray, about how the author portrays this culture. But our main character is of, I believe it's the Himba people. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. The, the Himba people, who are a real-life uh, ethnic group in, I believe it's northern Namibia, uh, one of the last of the uh, semi-nomadic pastoral people that are located around there, who are very famous and iconic from a visual standpoint as a result of a lot of the cultural uh, aspects that they wear upon themselves in terms of how they cover their skin with, I believe the novel calls it Ojeze, is that right? Ojeze. Or at oh, least, so, so the so because I listened to the audiobook, I, I I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but I got a little bit more of some of the pronunciations at least, um, mm-hmm. and I guess I'll mention here quickly is that the um, performer also had a fairly significant accent, um, not in a bad way, but it was just it had an African feel to listening to the book. Mm-hmm. Well, one. Some of the main key cultural touchstones of the Himba people that we know about from a, you know various images that were seen of them and as described in this novella are the ojeze, ojeze that they uh, cover themselves with, a kind of a mix of uh, red clay and other ingredients that they use to protect themselves from the sun, and also just because it has become an object of beauty in their culture. And it's wrapped in their hair, it's wrapped upon their skin, and it very much physically distinguishes both them in real life and her in the story from the world that she's living in. And I feel like uh, this Ojeze becomes one of the key themes of what you represented as one of the themes that the author's trying to convey through the story about how aspects of your culture are things that you carry with you, that they serve as an equivalent of armor against the world, that they both shelter you and serve as a point of your pride, and that even as you leave your culture behind, it's some, even as you are physically leaving your culture behind, you can't leave these various cultural touchstones away from you entirely, otherwise you're leaving part of your person. And this is something that's probably the most repeated element, I feel, of the story, is coming back to this, about her ritual of putting this upon herself, and describing how important it is to her. 
And I think that one of the things that is notable about it is that while it is like, it is a cultural object and a cultural practice, it is also at the same time, presumably, and we will talk about this as well, but like in the way that she understands it, it is rooted in the actual earth of her home planet. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is a very place-based cultural practice. Oh, Um, which is which is important as she is like actively leaving this place that none of her people leave. Yes, she's the first person of her tribe or of her people to um, venture out um, pretty much beyond the border of their area of of their Mm -hmm. city, I guess. Mm -hmm. Their territory or whatever it is. Yeah. Do, Do we feel the story is happening on Earth or do we feel it is happening in some kind of own universe to itself there seem like something they they call it earth they reference back to various other things but it feels very much like its own unique world kind of separate from ours um i guess it felt unique to me um i was gonna say i I, I, I guess earth-esque is what i'd say Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's fair and i think you know there's always the question or there, there is the question in this story of sort of like where you're going from and where you're going to. I mean, I think the destination that she is headed for is very clearly not Earth, but it is possible that she is coming from a version of Earth. Mm-hmm. It feels like with a lot of these things about her people, where she comes from, things that she brings with her, they don't, they're not necessarily trying to be realistic or even grounded in fact. They're almost intentionally just being symbolic for a theme that the author's trying to present. Um, it's part, it, it became hard to tie, but it, 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 I don't know whether it's necessary to try to tie them to real things in our world or even our universe, just because I don't think the author is really trying to focus on those things, I guess. Yeah. And I, yeah, get, and I wonder, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I found that a little frustrating that there were things that, were that seemed to be used in a this is like how you can understand what's going on because i'm going to reference something that you're familiar with and then it wasn't do you have an example in mind of that uh current mathematics astrolabe just you know just sort of all of those things that are that that are things that mean something to me and something I have experience with and then it just had nothing to do with anything I had experience with which might have been her purpose where it's just like you think you might be familiar with the themes and the ideas that I'm trying to go with but it's not but I guess I just had a hard time with that yeah I mean I think that I think that your read on the idea that these sort of touchstones that might be familiar, she is meant, she is meaning to be subverted and to be alienated in some way. Um, now, wh- whether that is successful or not is is certainly another question. But like my read was that we're going to take these things that are potentially things that we have experience with, that we have kind of memories around or thoughts around or whatever, and kind of invert them, subvert them, imbue them with different cultural meanings, metaphors, whatever, to move forward um, in an unsettling kind of way. And I I think, I guess my problem with it was there was, there wasn't an explanation of what they were. 
there wasn't any further grounding. It's just like, okay, well, I'm going to take mathematics or current and you have this idea of what it is. And it's not that in this world because this is a different world. But then there was no explanation or touchstone or anything as to what it was. And it just seemed to be a a word that she just tossed out, never defined. And we, I guess I never got a sense of how she was using those words for the most part. No, I think that's fair. And I think as we were talking about before we started recording, in terms of some of the other work that she's done, that where I think that she is most successful, and I don't think that this is a place where this happens, is when she is more in the realm of magical realism as opposed to sci-fi, but she seems to be trying to sort of transfer some of the tenets of magical realism to a sci-fi world in ways that sometimes seems just a little lazy in terms of like explaining what is actually going on. There were definitely moments of where I felt almost like I was reading something more into mythology than science fiction, where it was like I was reading some aspect of the of the Epic of Gilgamesh, of where it feels like, I mean, most of the words she's using to describe other cultures, whatever else, are words in various African languages or various aspects of African religion. I mean, um, I, I'm very much blanking on the names of the characters right now, but like the name of the main Medusa, one of the main Medusas she interacts with, is a word in a, a certain Nigerian language that just means the word name that uh, the Adam that she brings with her is a key aspect of um, a key totem of a, certain, of a certain religion in Nigeria. It feels like in many ways that is a science fiction story, kind of, that is set in a world that is built around the parameters and cultural aspects of various African mythologies. And almost because of that, because they don't really explain much of the aspects of the technology, because they don't really go into the detail of how things work, because so much comes across as magical, this feels, if we're calling this science fiction, to be much farther on the end of the fantasy end of the uh, spectrum than it is on the uh, science end of the spectrum in terms of how the universe works and is structured. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree. And I guess that's sort of where I think some of my frustration comes up. And, and fairly early on, I guess I just sort of decided that I'm just going to call it magic. Um, because, you know, to call it anything else to me is it was just frustrating my enjoyment and interpretation <laughs> of the book. Sure. No, sometimes you just have to kind of like take a step back and say, okay, what what am I going to do now to get the enjoyment out of it, out of this that is possible, right? Yeah. Um, and I must say that, that I did quite enjoy it. Um, and I didn't enjoy it as much the second time through when I was listening through it. And, you know, essentially taking notes and, and going through it with a more fine tooth comb, where mm-hmm. the first time I listened to it, it was just after I got over sort of that first hump of, okay, it's just magic, and that's fine. It was, I guess it was more vignettes to me because of how I was listening to it and that I was listening to it sort of when I had some time here and there. And so it just, it was a more pleasurable experience in that go through. Um, and then I, I, I listened to it and I experienced it as more a series of short stories and interactions and then other just descriptions of sort of what was going on and the culture that she was part of. 
and then yeah. I listened to it again in larger chunks, and that's when it it got more frustrating for me. That's interesting. Yeah, because I went I went through it again today, and I did not listen to it, but I was reading it, and so I went through it again today um, to make my notes, and I kind of had the same experience in a lot of ways. Um, kind of taking it as a whole, it did become more frustrating because you realize just like how much percentage of time is devoted to more or less the same interactions. Yeah. Um, and we've, we sort of vaguely touched on the plot, but even in the first bit of, um, once she's gotten to the, uh, spaceport mm-hmm. and, her first interact one of her first interactions with anybody else is- well can i just back up for yes. just a second because sure. okay so she leaves her she leaves her homeland she takes her transporter she goes um she makes this decision she goes to the spaceport to kind of await the ship that is going to take her to this university planet um so that's where we kind of are with the with the um the waiting game that you're talking about uh I, it might have even been at the bullet ship to get to that one. Oh, on the on the ship to get to. I think so because essentially the terminal. Right, because she's taking the bus. Yeah, she's taking the bullet bus. Um, right. Okay. And her first interaction, and this keeps getting repeated, is people touching her hair, mm-hmm. and it makes her super uncomfortable. But she doesn't say anything, and. Um, and I believe it's here where this, the Kush, the other majority people that she's dealing with on, on we'll call it Earth, um, is, I, I believe she references an interaction that her father would have with other people. And it's just like, you know, you sort of let it go because if you didn't, you know, I'd start a war and I'd finish it. Like I'd kill like all the people. And it was that sort of, is literally what she says, yes. And it was a very, like, odd interaction for me because it was just, like, it, it's clearly something that's so invasive for her. And I guess it tells us a little bit about how important this uh, putting the Ojize in her hair and how important that is to her, her sense of self, her ethnicity, and who she is. But also it seems to really contrast the judgment that is cast against the Kush and how warlike they are and that they've essentially started a war with the Medus that is ongoing and basically the the main uh, impediment to the story or the main thing that she has to overcome, I guess, in this story that we'll get to shortly. And it's like they cast... The, the book seems, or the novella seems to draw them in a very negative light because of this, but also, like, her father, and it seems like part, part of the culture that she's in are just, like, these insults would not normally be born, and we would start a war and just kill people because of how insulting this is. Well, I mean, I think... I take your point, but I also think that, like, part of where this is coming 
from is it, it's not necessarily the sort of like this specific act itself. It is the confluence and building upon of the small acts all the time, right? And so you can think about sort of like, and I mean, we are, none of us are African-American, um, but the sort of anecdotal um, interactions that I have had and that I know is that like one of the things that frequently um, black people in the United States deal with is like people just touching their hair. Yeah. Without permission, without acknowledgement, um, with this sort of entitlement that, like, in and of itself, I mean, okay, maybe it's just an isolated incident, but it is a part of a system that is, like, a real problem. Um, and I think that that is what she is getting at here, is that it's not these isolated incidents, I suppose, although she is, this character, Binti, is very much in a um, an environment in a situation that is also novel and scary and new for her, um, but that it is part of a system that she knows is um, kind of set up to be against her. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a lot of these lines offered by her father are part of a certain degree of cultural pride and just being above the uh, discrimination that they're facing, being above the intolerance that they deal with. That I mean, he, he, even when he describes it, that of course I would destroy them all, he then by in completing his words, uh, ask the seven to bury it in him and, and make it not actually part of his actions and deeds. Um, in terms of them describing themselves as being God's people, of being treasured and favored by the gods, in terms of celebrating the various accomplishments, it this element of pride that they bring into their own descriptions of themselves and their people almost feels like it's in being an intentional response to the world that has been arrayed against them. Um, and I think that comes through in terms of a lot of the lessons and sayings that she repeats that she learned from her family. Yeah. Um, and I, Do we lose somebody? Very much agree with you. Um, I guess what I was try I guess trying to reference is that the things that she seem that the book looks down on other people for, it's almost like it it is part of at least conversations that she's had like with her father um and yeah. there there's this whole like string of uh racist or culturalist or or other things that are very much as you mentioned like you know people uh touching black a black person's hair or something like that which is just so unpleasant and wrong and then it's like every interaction in the book had or many of the interactions in the book between any two non-same people have that interaction to it mm -hmm. and yeah that's fair and it's one of those things that that's i guess that's what i'm saying it's repeated so often and it is less of a common theme at that point and more a reiteration in my mind yeah no I, I i completely agree with that that like the types of interactions that are had between like various types of like self and other in a whole bunch of different ways are like essentially the same interaction in a lot of ways yeah it's, it's even to the point at the end of where she establishes a a calming point she connects herself with that people are people in that she presents herself and is immediately discriminated against 
And that almost just reassures her that, okay, I can deal with these people. This is the norm I'm used to. It, it, it's become that repeated at that point that she's actually putting it forth as this is the, such the norm of the world that I'm returning us to this point in terms of that I can know I can now interact with the universe in that it is just the same continuation of the racism and prejudice I've experienced previously. Yeah, and I guess hopefully we'll, we'll go through the plot and get to that point at, that you're referencing, but it made me so surprised that that's what happened in that situation because the the beings that she's interacting with aren't human and mm-hmm. you know maybe they would have learned about her but it seems just so odd to me that that's the interaction that she's having with these you know at least you know three or four different completely different races and their her interaction with them is the same uh she has the same slights against her that humans have against that of the other humans, the Kush have against her. Well, so yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting point. I think that we might need um, for our listeners a little more context. <laughs> like let's go through some of the plot yeah, to right. get so, to so, what we're, and we'll <laughs> go back to, to our dives themes. into yeah. sort of like what um, is going on here in a sort of like, othering oppressive whatever kind of way um which is all super important and like integral to the what is going on here but like let's get to a little bit of the plot first to get us to that point yeah as we said in terms of talking about she's coming from the hand of people which have gotten intentionally isolated themselves from the world um they are apparently incredibly brilliant have produced an an element of technology i think it's called the astrolab that everybody wants and needs but they have a very inward focus on how they interact with the world. As you talked about, BJ, she is in many ways her father's heir apparent in terms of her abilities, in terms of what he's trained her to accomplish, but it's clearly not the life that she wants for herself as much as she fears leaving it and how the, how the life will judge her when she leaves it behind. She wants to make use of her mathematical abilities, of her understanding of the harmony of the universe, to go off to this illustrious university in the sky that only allows like 5% human students in, that she's the first of her people to ever go there, that it's recognized enough that even when she's checking in to go on the spaceship to go there, the uh, TSA agent guard credits her as a, um, as a credit to her people just because, the, um, just because of the accomplishment that she's had. And I think it also says that she's the only human to ever have gotten like a full ride scholarship plus. It, I don't know if they say it's the only one, but it's, it's definitely marked as being a further testament to how skilled yeah. and incredible she is. Or at least maybe the only time that year. Um, yeah. And so, um, as we mentioned before, she leaves her hometown. She takes the bullet bus to the uh, starport, I'm going to call it, um, and um, has yeah. this in- interaction with the TSA agent that I thought was really odd. Um, it, it was a, you know, he, she, he's like, you know, can I see your astrolabe? And she's like, okay, hands it to him. And he like looks at it and knows everything about her. And it's almost like this invasion of her privacy. Mm-hmm. Hello, TSA. <laughs> yeah. And, but it was kind of like, it was very weird to me because it's like, she's 
designed the best astrolabe or one of the best astrolabes ever because her father's known for it and her people are known for or her people are known for making astrolabes her father's like one of the best astrolabe makers of her people and you know she's like improving on her father's designs but this t this tsa agent has basically delved everything about her from her technology can well, I don't know that the point of the technology was, like, privacy. Well, can, can you guys tell me in a few short words what an astrolabe is? Uh, magic. Um, I, so <laughs> I, I decided that basically <laughs> that it was a tricorder. I kind of pictured it as one, but I don't think they ever really tell us what it is. Well, so, so again, this is another point where it's... Um, as I was talking to you guys before we started recording where, and a little bit here is where we have a word that means something in our current language. And then in the story has nothing to do with that word. And then it's basically never described. And so an astrolabe is basically something for, you know, using the stars to figure out like where you are and, and your position and your altitude and it's a way of calculating basically where you are and where you're going. In the story, as far as I can tell, it's a it contains your personal information. It's your passport. It's your uh, device. You know, it's a microscope. It's a you know basically every scientific device all rolled into one to try and figure out everything that's going on around you. And a, and a communication device and uh, all rolled into one. And so you mean it's a smartphone? It yeah, it's a smartphone on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's why in my mind I just decided that it was a tricorder because it was sort of one of those things that has some relevance to our culture, but is just a magical doohickey thingamabob that just does whatever it needs to do for the story mm -hmm. yeah a, a lot of the actual aspects of science fiction that we consider pretty standard come across here as being more stage directions rather than realized things of where they're just aspects of her story rather than something that's existing in the universe independent of her yeah um anyway so after she has this interaction with the tsa agent he praises her for being impressive and special and and i believe reinforces the um idea that she's leaving her people and she's unique in that yeah. aspect and this is also the first moment in these terms these scenes where we get to encounter the uh, kush people who are seemingly the dominant i guess the dominant human ethnic group in this universe uh i thought where... it's the second time because the first time it was a bunch of kush women that were fingering bus, yeah. fingering her hair and it's like oh it smells good it doesn't smell like shit mm -hmm. we, we don't get a very good impression of them from pretty early on where most of her interactions with them throughout the story other than really dealing with the, her fellow students when she's flying through the cosmos on the intergalactic shrimp um they pretty much universally are being described as prejudiced as oppressing her people as judging down on her people as being kind of the reason their people are so isolated and being a warlike race that has brought danger and threat and harm to, to um, the rest of humanity. Does, um, 
it's not necessarily the best picture of the uh, what is the only other really ethnic group that's described herein of humanity. Uh, yeah, I think there was one other a little bit later that were the police force. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, but I feel like you're glossing over one of maybe my favorite things about this book, which was the mode of transportation. Well, I was going to get to that in a second. But, but okay. It, 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 yeah, I... we're in the weird, like, interstitial, um, like, waiting room. The terminal. We're in the yeah, terminal in now, the terminal. right? Yeah. And yeah. um, because I agree with you, BJ, about the mode of transportation here. It's unique. Yeah. And, and I guess this, this reiterates to me that I feel like she had a bunch of really good short stories or ideas and then strung them together because the idea of a young girl leaving the Earth for the first time, she's about to get onto the starship to go to another place. And it's a fish shrimp thing that they've manipulated to grow kudzu in its air sacs so they can breathe and be protected from the dangers of space was super cool like, oh, like listen this yeah. is this is space force like if this is space force i'm in <laughs> <laughs> and, and th this was legitimately very creative and very interesting and the main character is excited to go and explore it more and i was excited with her this was probably this first 30 pages and coming to this moment is one of the moments where I was most engaged in the story. Where I was with her and wanting to be, explore this new fascinating ship that she was in and this new incredible university that she was traveling to. And I was kind of immediately disappointed when we then get nothing really more in terms of describing the ship or how it works. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, they set us up in dorms and there's a food room and I talked about math with my friends now friends because it's been a week and we're all past all the awkwardness and there's this boy that i like yeah and so they all like this ship is only full of students who are going to um bj can you help me out on the pronunciation of the name of the university uh yeah umza uni Umza Uni. So they're they are all. It is essentially like a like a a summer experience before they get to um, this university, right? And they are all on this ship, and they are the only people that are on this ship. Um, and they have this like brief moment of everything's fine. Yeah, it's all good. She's able to find common ground with them over their shared interests of where the, that they all. Are mathematicians they all see the world in terms of math and you know, the share they share the same i think she calls it as treeing in terms of breaking out their consciousness in terms of um, solving problems in their head and that regardless of the prejudice regardless of the fact that they're all of these uh kush people they immediately establish a common bond she has friends almost immediately everything is going swimmingly um and then quite literally murderous jellyfish show up yeah um, and I just thought of a way that, that I can more comfortably frame the treeing. And this is terrible because, like, I'm imposing, like, familiar things onto the novel. But I guess it's because I want an actual, like, what it actually is. And that to be explored a little bit more so I don't have to pull from a reference that I have. But the um, In the Name of the Wind... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, he splits his consciousness to deal with different problems. 
and oh, and right. be able to do and be able to harmonize with the world and understand like the interplay of things and i i it, it was the the whole train thing was frustrating me and like i i actually just thought about this and and it's like okay now treeing makes sense to me no i think that's fair i think it is very akin to that kind of um splitting of consciousness state in name of the wind um and i think yeah that this this kind of fugue state that they enter into is really more of a kind of way of focusing and a way of kind of drawing inwards um, against whatever else might be happening outside. And we see that play out within the within the scope of this novella. Right. And I guess I didn't get that that was what it was because I feel like it was an association thing. It's just like something that she did on a regular basis and then sometimes when other things and then when she actually had to do something, she like pulled out of it. And so it it didn't fit with any it didn't seem to fit with anything it was just sort of like here's a thing in the world but it does track with that kind of Rothfuss understanding of what it is that they do when they are um kind of in this splitting consciousness right state exactly and and so like now now that I've thought about that it makes me a lot happier about like what it was used for because it didn't seem that it actually had a use but if that's what it is i can see where she could have gone with it rather yeah that's certainly I feel like how it, i read it yeah okay because i feel like it it didn't go anywhere nothing was done with it it was just sort of introduced as a word and something that people do well, it, it becomes a defense mechanism for her at various points throughout the story. Like when things get too, like too real, um, or too sci-fi, I guess, that that is the state into which she retreats in order to kind of regain a sense of self. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that, that seemed to be the only purpose of it and that didn't, wasn't satisfying to me. Right. But I think I think that you are right that like outside of the scope of this story, where that would have been used in this universe is a kind of name of the wind, splitting of consciousness, being able to do the cool shit that they are supposed to do. Yep. Um, well, a- anyway, so we have well, our our jellyfish come in. Is that where you were going, Spencer? It is, and it, it, it's very disruptive of where I felt the plot was building to and going. It almost like. It's almost like if we were reading Harry Potter and they get attacked by Dementors while they're still on the train. Um, it Well, they do at one point. They don't in book one. <laughs> and it, it very... It, it kind of divides this novel up into the second of its major arcs, which kind of stretches over the most time, and I find the most frustrating of the three because it feels so much like it's treading water. Uh, yeah. where As jellyfish do? I suppose... Would it, would it be fair to say that jellyfish tread water? <laughs> they just kind of um, bob in it. I don't know. Eh, it works. I, I understood the metaphor. Um, it is it is the same motion that they make. <laughs> so, it, but they it, hijack the ship and kill everybody aboard, but her and the pilot. I, I thought it was a couple of other people, but yeah, it was, it was at least she was the only one amongst her friends that remained. Um, and um, earlier today, there was a. 
a uh, news story. I don't know. I, I guess it's more of a clickbait thing. The title is 50 sci-fi game cliches that won't go away. And number mm-hmm. two is floating gas bag creatures. <laughs> and... Yeah. She takes pains to describe these guys as being floating gas bag creatures. That's most of their description is them breathing. Yes. Um, so, so I just sort of wanted to toss that in before we got too far away from the floating jellyfish uh, descriptor. But yeah, so everybody's killed sort of instantaneously um and i don't remember it was like a ritualistic killing of everybody and somehow she survives bj do you remember how they pronounced that word describing that wave thing because it's a long word that they use on one page and then never reference again uh i think they said it like three or four times like but on that page um and no i musha kabira yes Is is that what it is Yes, that is. PJ, did that sound right? Yeah, that 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 sounded very, very close to to what the uh, performer used. Well, they very quickly eradicate essentially everybody aboard, but at least at this point, as far as she knows, her. But she quickly finds out that she is essentially immune to their abilities as a result of another op, seemingly as a result of another object that she brought with her from home. The uh, I think it's called the Adam. I got that right. Um, yeah, so the, the Adon Ex Machina, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, uh, very much that, yes. It's an object described as kind of like a, a, a flat disc covered in whirls that she found in the desert that is described from the very earliest moments of this book as being something that she doesn't know, that it's of old, ancient, and forgotten technology, and she's not certain of its purpose or even what it's made of. And that no one knows. And, so, and, and when she tried to... St- take it through tsa they were like oh are you trying to sneak something dangerous and she's like no it's an adon they're just like a what like a thing like what is it what do you why why do you have it with you um she's like well it's an ancient thing and it's important to me and they're like uh okay fine yeah whatever and it's for reasons that are I'm not even going to say they're never. They're not, I'm, I'm going to say that not only are they not explained, but the book taunts us with that the main character understands it, but isn't going to tell us how it works. Of where she even says at one point that she realized how it worked and it was so simple. Why didn't you think of that before? And then it never goes into what it is. But it is seemingly a magical well, device. Well, how some of the things that she, some of the things that she could do with it because she can do like all of the things that her Aljuze can't do, and her. Uh, synergistic i don't remember exactly what they described it you know like putting the things harmony to, magic, the, yeah. yeah the harmony magic couldn't do the adon can do and so like it protects her from harm it allows her to communicate with um you know speak with other uh and medusa yeah uh and, and maybe a handful of other things um and but it makes her grip it Mm-hmm. She has to hold it tight to her at all times. Well, it's unclear if, like, the Adon makes her do that or if she is doing that out of fear and confusion. Okay. Um, not that it necessarily matters, but, like, my reading was that she was, like, unwilling to take, to let go of it um, right. because she didn't know what would happen if she let go of it, if it would extend its protection, as tenuous as that idea is, right. to her if she let go of it. 
and it gets difficult to a certain point to know how much of what she's saying is really what is happening or really what the rules are or if it's just how she feels in the moment things work given her increasingly yeah. starved dehydrated and desperately afraid state that she's operating in does she need and to hold the dumb yeah. or she is depending on it so yeah and that she doesn't know she has no idea how it works and so like the way it seems to work for her at this moment is if i hold this and kind of hold it out in front of me towards these things, then it does X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I must keep hold of it and hold it out in front of me. Yeah. To make sure that this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the Medus come in and uh, kill everybody and then end up being able to talk to her and basically say, all right, you know we're going to kill you and that this so this isn't super clear to me like how their first interaction ends up with her basically like she's super afraid of them and is like i know what i'm going to do i'm going to take the food that's lying around here and walk away well because she i my read was that because she wasn't killed in that sort of first wave that like something about her has protected her at this point and so presumably, I guess, if you are in that situation, you will say, well, there's something about me that protects me at this point. Maybe it's this thing I don't understand that I happen to be holding. Um, and maybe I can just ride this for a while. Okay. Which is essentially what she does. Yeah. She, having to do, she's not going to die today and having to do that they apparently can't hurt her, at least for this exact moment. I'm going to get supplies, lock myself in a room and try to fix this situation on my own terms that don't involve me being surrounded by... Uh, well, BJ, having played Mass Effect, I basically viewed these characters as angry Hanar, but, um... Yeah, so I I was halfway between Hanar and, um, the Futurama, uh... The tentacle creature? Uh, well, so, uh, the assistant that, um, Dr. Zoidberg has at one point, who's kind Uh. of like a tentacle nurse, um, anyway, so... She, having achieved a, lo- a moment of logical purity from not dying in this moment and seemingly being protected, grabs as much food and water as she can, goes into her room, locks the door, and pre- and dials 911, only to realize that she is in the middle of space, and space is huge, and nothing can really protect her. And yeah. kind Well, of- and... Sorry, what I would point out, just kind of in some of the themes that I think we're going to talk about later, is that she doesn't think about dialing 911 first. Mm-hmm. She thinks about calling her family first. She does. That's true. And decides not to. Because, and logically deducing, there's not much that they can do to help me right, right. now. I, well, let me try to contact the authorities. Which is, most of these decisions she's making right now are the perfectly logical ones that she can make. It's just, rightfully, she then quickly realizes that there's nothing that anyone can do to help me. I'm kind of stuck. And the chapter ends in a bit of a depressing note of her, her falling into a deep dark state. Oh, are there chapters? Uh, there's at least line breaks, I'd say. It's okay. kind of, it really is just one chapter, isn't it? Uh, there, are, there are divisions between short stories. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Uh, um, Better description. And I guess, so the next story, she starts to communicate with the Medusa. And then, I, ha- I guess this, this part like kind of confused me, because it kind of took me out of it a little bit. So she tries, she starts talking... Um, to the Medusa and um, she 
the person that I guess she sort of starts talking to, the younger Medusa that you were looking for the name, which was Oku. Thank you. Um, and then basically is like starts to open up a dialogue with him and tries to be like, all right, so what's going on here? And I guess it took me out of it when it's just like, okay, but I really need to pee. Um, and I don't know why that stuck out to me so much, but it was just like, uh, okay, like I have everything prepped and like, all right, we're going to have a conversation, but oh my goodness, bodily functions are making this super uncomfortable. Um, and then I guess it's sort of one of those things where there were a couple of not right, quite touchstones, but like different sort of vignettes that she had where, you know, she talks about bathing with some of her friends and stuff like that, that just sort of jarred me out of the narrative. And this was one of them. It's, as you say, most of these next 30 or four so pages are her efforts to delight what she feels is in some ways possibly inevitable while trying to broach a certain degree of communication with this Medusa race who view the universe in a very stylized and ritualized kind of manner of where they continually describe her as being the evil seemingly in large part just because she doesn't establish she doesn't follow the rules by which they view humanity and is not actively dying to their will um over time they continually try to find efforts to hurt her ultimately without success but in doing so they get close enough to her that they actually start to interact with her of where i think it's um but, i i struggle so much with these names they don't have them in front of aku uh briefly brushes against her with his tentacle and gets some of the ojize caught on him and quickly deduces that this ojize for some reason has a remarkable healing effect upon him and his people Oh, yeah. Oh, and, I forgot. We, we skipped over the fact that the Aedon killed somebody, it, one of the squirts, yeah. or one of it, the Medusa. It, it and potentially injured him. some others, yeah. Yeah, and it injured some others, and so when he touched her, the Ochize rubbed off on one of his tentacles and healed him. Mm-hmm. Which she notices, doesn't really believe, wait until he comes back, wait waits until excuse me he comes back and then kind of confirms oh his tentacle does not look the same as it did the last time right it's Mm -hmm. no longer a weird blue it's now clear again um Mm -hmm. and this quickly becomes a bit of a uh, negotiating point between the two of them of where he's now realizing that she has this kind of all healing panacea wants to get some of it while at the same time she wants to try to find a way to survive so she originally kind of used the idea of it to negotiate some food and water out of him, but eventually broached it into the idea that I can give you this if you let me go talk to your leader, and I broached this idea that I just came up with to try to prevent you from going on the mission. Uh, well, I guess you just say what their mission is. Apparently, they've hijacked this ship for the purpose of using it as a means of kind of like a Trojan horse to get into the university so that they can conduct essentially a terrorist attack on the university to A, cause devastation, and B, steal back something that was stolen from them, the stinger of their leader. Um, She quickly decides that since the university is people like me, 
who think of the world in logical, reasonable, rationalistic terms, I can talk with them and I can use my skills at Harmony uh, to bring about a peaceful solution to this problem. And if you let me go talk to your leader and present this option, I will give you my Ojize so that you can use it to continue to heal yourself and others. And I think sort of striking in this plan and in the description of how this plan is communicated um, is this idea that the reason that she is able to kind of get on as much as as much as he like purports to want to kill her um the reason that she's able to get on relatively well with okwu is that you know he is young she is young but we also get some hints that he happens to be an outlier among the medusa as well mm -hmm. right um, and so she is trying to convince him of like, no, really, if you let me go talk to your chief and kind of try to figure out some sort of way that this can happen, like not ransacking the university and killing everyone involved. I, I think that that will be good for you. You will be a hero to your people. And he says, we don't care about being heroes, mm -hmm. but his quote unquote pink tentacle twitched when it said this. Like that, though, there are some parallels between them and their motivations here as well. Very much so. She even describes him as reminding her a lot of her brother in terms of the mm -hmm. justified but ineffective and irrational anger that he's bringing, into, bringing out in terms of viewing and act, interacting with the world. That his rage is perfectly justified, that their perspective is perfectly justified. She feels a lot with the um, Medusa people. In some ways, they share a bit of a... Comp her, her people and, and them share a bit of a common heritage in terms of being viewed as the other, the evil, the oppressed by the Kush people. So much so, I think she even talks about how the Kush people have so demonized the Medusa that they write in descriptions of their dangerous capabilities with their tentacles into even their, their lessons about mathematics. And so because she is also an outsider, because she is also viewing this from both the perspective of a person who's been ostracized by society and also from a person who views the world in mathematical terms, she is able to establish this common footing. She's able to broach and harmonize these relations just because she's not as steeped into the angry mud of it as these two other people are. And it's coming from the same perspective that the Medusa are in a way that the Kush never could. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and so I think that sort of leads us up to the uh, chief basically saying, when she broaches this, like, all right, you know, these are reasonable people. Why don't you let me go talk to them instead mm -hmm. of, you know, trying to kill everybody and take it back by force? Because, you know, if you kill everybody at this large university, they're going to come back and kill you. And it's just going to repeat the same cycle of violence that's been a problem for a while um and i was also a little confused here because they talk about the accords and it seems like there was a peace treaty at some point yeah. maybe there's a lot of inconsistency in terms of yeah. describing the relations between the kush and the medusa where they, they talk about she when she goes and talks to them she says you've never seen them before you've never acted before you know nothing about them but they previously established peace treaties. They've shared technology. You apparently stole his stinger somehow, but you know nothing about them, have never interacted with them, and have no relations. A lot of that comes across as really inconsistent in terms of painting the background of these races. Yeah, it doesn't track. Um, 
anyway, and so the chief basically says, all right, that sounds good. You seem to be an honorable sort and under you can understand us and we can converse. And so uh, you'll be our emissary to people that you've never met, don't know, and basically only know that you're going to study there and decide that they're going to give up and a prized uh, possession antiquity or something well you know she has this undisclosed harmonizer function too so right that'll make everything okay yeah so, so she has special powers that will help uh, notably there's also a symbolic moment of where she has to they make her drop the adem that they make her put down her armor her protection to show that she's willing to do this, to show that she's willing to take the risk with them. Right, and, well, and so what they said is, you can't be our emissary if you still have the Adan, because clearly they will realize that that's not how it works. Or not that's, that's not how an emissary would be behaving, because this magical thing that she doesn't understand and no one else really understands obviously is some very obviously to everybody that's going to encounter her a protection against the Medusa, so she can't hold on to it it's it's a reasonable enough stance to take that if they if there's anything that they can deduce from this to indicate that you don't trust us and don't like us and feel a threat by us they're not going to really believe that you're speaking on our behalf or trying to actually work out a deal here it's again Working under the assumption that anyone's going to even understand what this friggin' ancient lost technology is or how it works or can even see the same blue energy lines that she apparently is now seeing emanating from it. But, you know, it's a reasonable enough stance to take about how this should go, how this should go down, I feel. Yeah. And then, as far as I can tell, they immediately sting her. Yeah, they essentially kill her in terms of description from the next paragraph. And yeah, the- she has to do a sort of death and rebirth sort of thing, which is not does not become clear. It maybe never becomes clear why she has to do that, but it's certainly not clear why that happened in the immediate kind of plot of the story. Yeah, right. and then this is a trope that, again, is so, so common. I feel like whenever there's a female character in any reasonably long story is she basically wakes up semi-naked <laughs> hadn't thought about that but yeah yeah and again this is another place where i was taken out of the story with you know i woke up and my edan was on my chest and i sat up and it fell into my crotch and then i picked it up and i i had some internal changes and just like the way that she that the author describes certain things just sometimes is very jarring and i don't know like what the purpose behind it would be but i could also like i sort of get the sense that this is like a girl becoming a woman thing and so she's very cognizant of those things um i don't remember where the um bathing with her friends thing comes out where where that was in in the I'm, plot I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's right can here. I, 
Okay. Can I do just a sort of crossover episode? And if I were my husband right now, if I were Lee, I would say, please, BJ, tell me more about a girl becoming a woman thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I would happily, you know, have you jump in here <laughs> because this was just like, I have no idea what's going on. And this is the only thing that I can think of making sense at all at this point. And then we get a description of her bathing with her friends. And if anybody saw her, she wouldn't be able to get married. And I'm just like, huh? Well, you know, I think what happens here is that, like, I take your point. And I mean, I think I think you're right. It is a jarring thing. It is a, a description that has... The, the way the description is presented has little to no impact. The bathing with the friends thing, this idea of the, and can you remind me the pronunciation that you heard of the paste? Ojize. Ojize. Um, like that, that is really the central thing here. We have all of this discussion of like the astrolabe and the Edan and all of this, but it really is the Ojize that kind of drives this whole thing and becomes oh, yeah. this kind of, um, both cultural cultural touchstone as well as um like performative thing that happens as well as something that actually does something in the world apparently given the fact that it heals these medusae um so like that scene of the bathing with their friends and like what it means to be without this paste on them like that i get um but i agree that the the description of what happens when she wakes up without the Adan is like, that's a little bit trickier to kind of figure out, okay, well, why do we care? I felt like these two scenes were an interesting just contrast of her writing style of where there's scenes like when she's bathing with her friends that are highly symbolic. I think they're fairly well described what she's going through. They go into the very much debate that is within her character. That is a key theme of this story. And then there's the scene of her getting stabbed and her waking up, which is just so sterile in terms of how it's being described. Yeah. There's very little emotion connection to it. It's very much just this happens, this happens, she wakes up, and now I get onto something I actually care about. Of words, we kind of talked about. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. This is a collection of short stories with a pretty poor stringing together between them. Of where you can clearly see what scenes matter to her. They connect back to the theme that she's actually wanting to present for the story, the purpose behind the story. And then everything else is just trying to get between those moments that that what she actually wants wants us to focus upon. But I, I felt like the scene of the, them bathing was, it was important because it showed a level of self-doubt in her character, we, and self-doubt and reflection in her character that we don't otherwise get to see. So we talked about the Ojeza is the story. It is the most referenced thing. Yeah. It's the most centrally important thing. It is by which her people are embodied, by which she identifies as a person. It is by which she overcomes obstacles and is by which she is offering something to the world. And this is the one moment of where we actually see her ponder what could be life without it. Because previously, it is every moment she says about that it is of my people, it is of the earth, and it is what makes us beautiful. In this moment, she sees herself below it. That she is among the friends, and they're staring at each other, and they're pondering, what would be life if we left this behind? Could I do this? Would this be something I want? And then she's not given an opportunity to take it any further. Because she's kind of forced that, okay, well, I can't really do it right now because everybody's expecting of it me. If I'm not wearing this, they won't be able to recognize me as my people and they'll think I'm weird, which is, again, confusing because then in that moment they act surprised about various aspects of her culture, but apparently all, all know about it, but whatever. And, but she finished this point of where I might actually want this, but I don't have time to do it. 
but then she finishes it with, in italics, I wouldn't want to do it anyway. It's, or it's this interesting logical thought process of hers where she's actually pondering a life truly of her own and outside of her people. But she immediately retracts from it and never mentions it again. Which, um, well, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because, like, I think that you can see this as a sort of analogy for something like a burqa, for example. Sure. Um, that provokes, of course, like, vibrant and vehement debates around it on all sides. Um, but when you frequently listen to people who are to women who are wearing it kind of on an everyday basis, you have this kind of like, I feel naked without it. Mm -hmm. Um, it is part of my culture. I understand that there are things about it that are potentially problematic, but this is something that I'm choosing to do. And maybe I am choosing or not to do it on my own terms. Like this is kind of the same rhetoric that you get in this, um, in this moment. Mm -hmm around that kind of discussion and around the kind of stories of, of women who, who wear burqas. Yeah, even to the point that other people looking at me will judge me if I'm not wearing it, even if they're not part of my culture, because it's become part of the expectation for me. Okay. I, I guess I, I appreciate that you guys had that discussion because that scene made no sense to me. I guess I still don't understand the placement of that scene I think it would it would have been more I, useful if it had been earlier. Um, either, but like or later. It, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it makes perfect sense to have at least some, uh, like, the second half of that scene where she, like, went through her questioning and then, you know, decided to continue with it before she goes to the university. This is, again, why I felt like, I feel like this would be better as something, either a collection of short stories or something longer, because... It almost feels like she feels the need to cut this scene off early and rush on to the next plot point so that she can finish off the novella. Yeah, and I guess it was also she felt that she had to cut this into the previous scene and then the connection between like the reminiscing about her childhood with her other friends also seemed wedged into just like the whole deciding to continue with being part of her people and that being also associated with uh not being able to get married off mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think you know to your to your point one of the things that is most frustrating to me is kind of where and when flashbacks happen here just sort of writ large they frequently seem sort of shoved in at these moments that are like of some physical or emotional trauma for Mm -hmm. Binti. Um, And so like, I get that maybe if you are in some sort of state of emotional or physical distress, you have these kind of flashback, like light at the end of the tunnel, life flashes before my eyes, moments, whatever. Um, But they happen several times in that vein throughout this a hundred page novella mm-hmm. and it feels very sort of like predictable and a a way to sort of shove background in that you're like well why didn't we just go from point a to point b in the first place yeah, yeah. um i actually wonder if i bet it would have felt i think it might have felt better to me like I, or at least looking back you know once i've ascribed these other uh understandings to to the words that she used to describe is that if she was like 
forced into a tree and this was basically like one of the selves that she splits off is experiencing this and it's in like a basically no time elapses but Mm -hmm. one of her her main aspect that she's split off experience uh re-experiences this memory and is because she's trying to find her sense of self again and then reemerges from it and is like, no, I am of my people. And even though, you know, I have taken this route that divorces myself from the expected path that I would take, I am still of my people. Yeah, as opposed to this kind of like purely, because what it feels like now is it's a purely narrative driven thing Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to there is some instrumental reason within the plot that she is doing these kind of flashbacks right and so if there was some reason in the plot that she was doing it it would feel more sort of fantasy sci-fi e based right but it feels like right now it is again kind of trying to ride that line between okay maybe in like some sort of quote-unquote literary fiction you can do these flashbacks without any reason to be doing a flashback um, but in this type of narrative, it feels forced to try to do that. That's really interesting points by both of you. BG, as you said, if, if, to reference it back to Name of the Wind, if this was part of like her ritual of going into the heart of stone, that would be interesting. That would be that would be compelling. And as you, as you talked about, Sarah, I think as particularly as we get near to the end, and particularly from one of the last scenes, the author really starts over relying on the omniscient on, on the omniscient, but the describing from on high narrator to complete the story and complete how she's mm-hmm. going about it. That really just draws me out of any emotional connection or any actual connection to the events that's happening. Uh, and it really comes into play for me heavy, heavily in terms of this last scene that's coming up of where they land the ship. For some reason, they don't just blow it up from orbit, despite the fact they're advertising they've got Medusa board, lucky them. And we get a very, very, very young adult revolu- uh, resolution of the plot of where she arrives on the scene, she speaks for two minutes, and the problem is solved. And well, even then, when she's speaking for two minutes, the author doesn't actually let her speak. The author describes it, the inter- inter- introductory two paragraphs and then narrates it, which is really taking away from what meant to be the ultimate climax moment for the character of where she's finally arrived, where she was set out to come. She's picked her own mission. She has a goal now of broaching relations using her own unique perspective and her own unique harmony to do so. And then the author doesn't let it happen. The author just describes it as if she were reading the Wikipedia entry described summarizing it later on. And I found that very eminently frustrating in terms of how the author chooses to go about ending her own narrative. Yeah, um, and I was going to say, some of the pieces like connecting to this last bit of the story also just felt weird to me. It's like, all right, well, I left the chief, and like he didn't say like what I needed to do, um, so I guess I could just wander off, but I probably should take care of that sooner rather than later, because you know he's probably waiting for my response, and I guess I should go talk to the university now. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of... I, it was describing like an internal narrative that was odd to me. And again, if it was just like one of these, like she's forced into a tree state or something like that, rather than just a weird narration of 
kind of nonsensical things but if she's just like completely freaked out and has to figure out how to deal with this and then like applies logic to what's going on rather than having that sort of just disjointedness and then sort of end up in this completely new place and then there seem to be just like random underhanded descriptions of like other alien beasts and mm-hmm. so we or other alien species i shouldn't say beasts but like we get like a good complete description or at least a, a fairly fleshed out description of the medusa and then it's just like three or four word descriptions of like five or six different aliens that that's coming around and then again they have this like weird unpleasant interaction with her and then they get to this the this part that spencer doesn't like which is the speech that doesn't happen it's the uh narrative equivalent of the great general made a very uplifting speech and everybody was uplifted and then it's kind of like a everything sort of resolves and then she's like oh and by the way i'm probably gonna add on to this novella um and so this professor's gonna teach you math and then we're gonna figure out what happens with your um Aidan, and um do you know what you're gonna do with your life you might want to address that and then we'll we'll probably i'll talk about the closing sentences basically uh, again because they made me so unhappy when when I listened to them three or four more times but I feel like that sort of resolution of the main story was just weird and it was just like we don't get a description of this presumably really interesting situation that she has herself in and what she's experiencing and then it just sort of resolves There are a lot of plot points that wrap up the story at the end that feel a little bit just thrown in for the purpose of... Oh, I'm not sure, sure exactly what the purpose is. We can debate it. Um, everything feels very easy with respect to how she solves the problem between the races. Um, every, no one really addresses or confronts or has any degree of uh, consequences for the fact that the Medus did kill, like, a couple hundred people on this ship, Right. I mean, these were innocent. And it presumably, like, had these massacres occur in other points and times, right? Yeah. I mean, th- this is apparently a key part of the relations to the point that it's been ingrained in the Kush culture of what devastation they inflict upon us. And part um, of their histories. And enough part of their histories that Binti knows this ritual form of killing. Oh, yeah. And the, the, they pride themselves in it. They discuss in detail about how they are going to kill her. These are a, a, this is a violent warrior race to a certain degree here. And in this one moment, what they've done is immediately utterly forgiven because apparently the stealing of a cultural t- touchstone and putting it in a museum, which feels like a very direct reference to various museums in our real world, is the ultimate unforgivable crime by which everything else just pales in comparison. Um, yeah, I was going to earlier when we were talking about it make a reference to Klingons. Um, and it just kind of felt like this whole honor and regaining of the, not really a weapon weapon 
that the chief has and is part of him and it holds intense cultural significance whole saga and then once it's returned to him like everything's pretty cool which just reminded me of some of those story arcs it's apparently i mean based on his description based on how important it is it's apparently his equivalent of ojese and i know i'm butchering that word every time i use it but it's a cultural touchstone that the rest of the world doesn't understand and the rest of the world mistreats and uh him for and just willing to use for their own purposes and ends and once it's restored to them he is complete and always forgiven and always right with the universe um and then there was this weird like knighting ceremony thing where he sort of uh flopped his uh tentacle on her lap and (laughs) it was Sorry, that was wording, yeah. but, you yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. He flopped his it, it tentacle on of, her lap. Okay. It As was kind does, of intentional, on. because that's kind of how they seem to refer to this special piercing tentacle killing thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Um, and it was just like, all right, well, I'm going to put it in your lap now, and you're basically going to become, like, an honored uh, Medusa, and now you have tentacles, too? Well, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, like, the the when she got um, stabbed and pierced by the tentacle in this sort of, like, pseudo-death resurrection thing, presumably, like, that's when she was imbued with this, like, pseudo-Medusa thing. Right. Yeah, but it, I... Th- that happens. I also think it got further because I... I, I don't know if you guys read the same thing, but it didn't seem like she had hair anymore. She yeah, had it, tentacles. No, it doesn't. She has tentacles, yeah. Right, but like at that point, it was she was describing her hair after she got stabbed. So at that point, she might have been starting that transformation, but it wasn't there yet. And then it's at this point that after the, I'll call it a knighting ceremony, that basically one of the university professors is like, hey... Uh, you can't go home. You got tentacles. Yeah, it, this is fair it, point. This is ambiguous because at first you could maybe try to try to explain it that okay, they're all apparently still covered with um, the Ojeze, and so she just can't tell. But she also talks about in a later scene that there is distinctly fewer tentacles than she had previously in terms of her plated hair, the complex whirls and patterns that she had that describe the entire genealogy and history of her people. So if that's the case, I don't know how it works in terms of her not being able to tell um, that they were just merely covered before. So I, I don't Yeah, know. and it also seems that they become sort of like appendages where they have sensory, um, sensory responses as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Very, yeah, very much so. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily think it's perfectly explained or needs to be. I don't think, I don't think the author's dwelling on it much. Why do we feel that that happened, though? Because that's one of the big surprises of the novel. It's one of the big ways that she actually changes over the course of the story. Why is the author writing this in? What's she trying to say by it? She's the emissary. She's the emissary between the races, and so it's a very classic sci-fi trope. She has to do something to connect and broach themselves between it. It's like Delenn and Babylon 5 becoming half-human for establishing closer relations kind of thing. Yep. 
Well, and I think it's both, I think it's like establishing closer relations in the way that you're talking about, but I think that it is also for her in her narrative, moving away, um, it is it is a distinct sort of difference that she now exhibits between herself and her homeland. And, and she can never that go is back a kind home. of like unbreachable, yeah. Right. Um, so she is she is um, changed in a way that is it is impossible to go back from. Right. Because previously, even as she talks about how I can't go home again, I'm ostracized, whatever else, she the fact that she's clearly repeating this indicates that she, there's still a thought at the back of her head that well, I'll eventually go home once I'm done. Yeah. With no, this she's journey. convincing herself, um, but when there is like physical evidence that no, you are actually different from where you started. Right. Um, and you are physically and really a pariah. Mm-hmm. That's different. Right. It finally has now become real to her that this is my life now. This is the future. That the last bridge has been burned, whether I wanted it to or not. Yep. Well, the story effectively just kind of wraps up from there, of where she story starts to run to run out of her magical cultural armor, is able to go off into the woods and using her own practices, essentially make some more that apparently because of some aspect of how it's made or the fact that she's making it or the fact that she's willing it to work still has the same magical regenerative properties when it's used in the Medus. Yeah. And so she coats herself again. And this is where I just, I, I literally rewound the audio book at least four or five times to go through this because as you said, and, and it still heals the Medus. And so, um, this is i guess i don't know exactly like where things come together timeline wise but the chief reattaches his stinger thing Um, back back a little bit earlier yeah and so and has this scar that she describes as he will bear this scar forever because of the violence of humans against him and it'll never heal and it i and then and it's this blue ring and you can always tell the difference and then three or four sentences later it says and she put her ochise on his tentacle and it went back to the way it always was and was perfectly clear and you couldn't tell the difference and i feel like that that writing is so like she had a good sentence that sort of was you know bearing the you know he's scarred and this is the scars of war that's been going on between his people and humans or the kush depending on exactly what that history is and you know hopefully you know with this new generation of uh of oku and his relationship with binti they'll be able to move forward with this and then three sentences later Oh yeah, that scar, that problem. Yeah, we've just healed it with Ochise because Ochise is the best thing ever. And that just like I, again, like I didn't pick it up on my first listening. It was that she had worded the that scar as something that's like he's going to take forward. And then it was just like, "Oh, he had a scar and through whatever you know, magical powers and her skills. She was able to recreate the Ochise and now she doesn't have to return home to continue 
using this ability and maintaining this relationship with the Medusa. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. That's cool. And then I reread it and I was like, ooh, that's no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, like, I could have... I, I can get behind the idea that, like, the o- o- Ochize is something that is kind of endemic to her. Um, that the idea that it... Well, it was made from the clay of her homeland, and that is really important. But now she has symbolically claimed a new homeland, and it works for her. Like, that's fine. But the fact that it then, like extends to the Medusa, like i i don't know we, we, we debated before the podcast whether this be another example the, the book flirts a lot with the concept of magical realism and we were debating whether this event at the end was magical realism and sir i loved your comment that where you just said no that's just magic no i mean it's not because like magical realism actually and i would love to talk about this more um a little bit later but magical realism which um, Okorafor does do, and does do very well, I think, um, in other places, has a very particular and distinct definition, although it is much debated, but, like, there, there are confines to it. This is just, like, lighting logic to make something work. Like, this is not magical <laughs> realism. Well, um, in terms of Finishing off the plot, do we have anything else to add here, or have we kind of reached the end? Well, I did. Do we ever say that um, Okwu and um, Binti right. are both like they are both accepted to the university and yeah. are students there, and presumably that is where the next novella in the trilogy is going? Yeah, that's my yeah. assumption. And so I think it was part of her discussion with the university, the universe, the the. Uh, Jedi Council at the university basically says, you know, we accept, you know, that we did something wrong. We'll go get the the stinger thing. And um, as a way to maybe bridge the gap between the Medusa and whatever, I I, again, I didn't get this. We're going to take Oku as a student, too. And so that's going to make everything better. But I guess the I, I get more and more confused the more I think about the story. Um, and I think it's interesting because my first listen, I enjoyed it a lot more than going through it with a more fine-tooth comb with our discussion. I feel like that's been the opposite for most of the other books that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Basically, there's this Jedi Council kind of thing at this university that's made up of, that doesn't seem to have humans on it, that has these other professors, and yet they want to take the Medusa in as a student because of reasons, but this seems like it would make so much sense if this was a human university, and it's like, hey, we want to take one of your people in and like a you know bring them into our knowledge and culture and so we can have a cultural exchange and start to understand each other on a non-war basis but it's these kind of random aliens that we don't know anything about that don't seem to have much relationship with the medusa maybe they were at war maybe they weren't that's not clear i guess the only clear part that i have on the medusa relationship is their war with the kush yeah. yeah. 
I, th I think she says at one point that the humanity is only like 5% of the population of the university. So it'd be interesting for the university to apparently make this broad, world-changing decision affecting its own operations concerning a relative minority conflict that's going on. Yeah, and I guess if it's like the Medusa are just at war with everybody, then that doesn't also drive with the descriptions of the Medusa basically being these honorable, logical uh, squid people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you would also wonder, like, okay, well, like, given the 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 story that we get about how the chief stinger in, ended up at the university, well, what does that mean for kind of relations between the Medusa and other species? Yeah. I guess I like I was that. Did I miss that? Like, what was that story of like how it ended up there? They don't say. They just say that somebody, somebody stole it. it. Yeah. Somebody yeah. acquired it and they violated our rules and procedures in terms of how they acquired it. That we're only supposed to acquire things with the permission and respect of the people that it was acquired from. And so they are banished and exiled because of what they did. We don't. And I don't. Like, in what situation are the, is the chief of the Medusa going to give up his stinger um, oh. in, like, a fair and balanced Oh, so exchange. I assume that he was, like, a chief of. Like, he was the captain of the ship. Oh, interesting. Okay. I I mean, I assumed that that was the case, but I assumed that there might have also been some sort of, like, larger tribe or something involved. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess larger tribe. I get... The... I, I sort of assumed that he, like, was part of a tribe, but, like, was essentially the captain of the ship, and so very well respected, and I... I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to pull again from the Klingons where the captains of the ships are usually parts of like major ruling families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they, there's both that cultural and military and all rolled into one as the head of the ship. Mm -hmm. That might be the case. It, it is unclear in the story to what extent like chief means chief. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like we keep touching on this and I wonder if we had come at this from a non-sci-fi reading perspective, mm -hmm. if it would have been a better experience and a better, like going through it again would have been like a better, we would have had, we would have been happier with the story because I must say like my first impression of the story was a lot better given a sort of light listening of it or, you know, light reading of it. As opposed to a kind of like sci-fi deconstruction of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, as opposed to deconstructing it and, you know, looking at the plot points and looking at how yeah. the author is expressing these various themes, the plot, the character development, and the description of the world around her. I think we kind of get back to one of the things we talked about early on of where the plot really isn't the goal of this that she has her themes, she has her motifs, and that's what she wants to put on the page, almost as just commentary on the very stereotypical standard plot that they're being put inside. So, I mean, I, I think as much as the plot frustrates me, I just don't, I don't think the author particularly cared. I don't think that was really what she wanted to talk about when she was writing this. It so, doesn't, it doesn't read that way, certainly. Um, I, Sarah, you... You are way more well-versed than either of us, but what would you think of this oh as a play? 
I think that this would actually, I, it would be difficult to stage from a sort of like, <laughs> right, but like, just I guess, purely strategic. But I think actually it would probably work as a play. I, um, I think you have, you know, I, we talked about, well, we kind of mentioned the difference between like, are there chapters here or are there not? Well, if you are just reading it structure wise, you know, you have these sections that are, that are um, delineated by these three ellipses that indicate that we are at least moving in time or moving consciousness or something like that, that would, I think, could read well as acts within some sort of short play. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I was thinking and I, I wanted to talk to you about is like, I feel like there are some aspects of it that are acts and some aspects that of of it that are sort of talking to the audience is sort of the internal internal dialogue where Mm -hmm. um i've seen some plays where you know the action is going on and then one character sort of comes forward and talks to the audience and says sort of this is what's going on in my head or some background or something like that and i feel like if i think about it that way some of the flashbacks and some of the other things that just seem a little bit more out of place fit a little bit better where it's just yeah you can go ahead yeah so so the act of like i if i imagine that you know after she's had this stinger rebirth incident and she's looking at the ochise in her hand and then she gets up and like goes in front of the audience and it's like i remember as a little girl when or you know when i was younger and bathing with Mm -hmm. my friends and this happened and but i would feel naked without my ochise and then like reapplying it and then she's like looking at it again and then reapplies it to her hair Hmm. yeah i think that's fair i mean i think you can see a um a kind of staging where you have these asides but you also potentially have split screens where the background or where the um, flashbacks are going on all of that i think makes more sense than reading it linearly on a page. That's a really interesting idea, because if these little flashbacks, if these very much in-her-head moments were being told soliloquies, I think it would give it, it would make it a much more complete story of hers than it comes across when we're just reading it sterilely on the page. If it's actually that's very clearly her in the moment, thinking about these moments of her past, thinking about her own perspective upon them and how they're influencing how she's acting now, that would really much tell a much more complete story about her than it comes across from just reading it on the page. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's also part of the reason that um, many of her works have been optioned for miniseries or she has also written for, of course, Black Panther, um, things like that, that have crossed media which, to to become something different. Which work of hers has been optioned by HBO? Because I know George Robert um, talking about that a lot. Yeah, so it is, and I want to make sure I get the title right, so just a second. Um, I think it's, hold on, I'm sorry. Thank you, Tom, I don't know the answer. Uh, Who Fears Death. It is Who Fears Death, which is, um, like, I have read, and I think... Oh, and I, I really Martin's an liked, executive yeah. producer. Yeah, um, I really liked it is it is different. And I actually want to talk about this kind of in terms of what I find most interesting and compelling in in the writing that she does. Mm-hmm. So Who Fears Death happens in like, I would call it a fantasy world, I guess. Um, but it is more of it is it is certainly not sci fi. It is a more Earth based or Earth ish based 
um, setting that it happens in, but it has these sort of like weirdnesses and cosmological happenings um, and a certain system under which it functions that um, makes it a little bit more consistent without having these elements that we have talked about today as being like a little bit unbelievable and inconsistent in how they are presented and explained. Um, so it becomes a more fantasy, and actually it is to me a very myth-like structure, which I think is interesting and I think will translate well to TV. Um, but yeah, it also, it also functions in kind of a universe that she uses in various ways in different places. And so a lot of her short stories reference the same kinds of things, even if they are not happening in exactly the same place or exactly with the same people. Like they have this kind common thread that kind of run through a certain subsection of them. Interesting. Well, having essentially completed our uh, our plot arc of our show, shall we move on to the various uh, aspects of theme or philosophy or just other things that we found interesting? Uh, I, sure. I, yeah. I, I, I've got one I think would be useful to start with, of where we've talked about this work could fit into various aspects of Afrofuturism, of where most of the words, most of the descriptions are tying into real-world uh, African words or religious aspects or cultural aspects. Most of many of the words that are coming across as being in another alien language are actually tied to various things from Nigeria. Why do we feel then that she? Why do we? One of the most striking things about this book is that the main character is from the uh, the Himba people, who are not normally described in much literature, particularly not in the science fiction setting. Why do we feel that among the various African cultures that the author chose to pick the Himba culture for the main character as? And with these cultural aspects of them being very much what the book is built and structured around. Uh, I mean, I think I think one thing that you can think of is um, so I, I think that there are a couple of things going on here, and I don't I don't claim to have any sort of like actual knowledge about this, but the way I would think about it is that much of um, Okorafor's short stories and, and fiction that are more realist um, happen in Nigeria particularly. But I think that the cultural reality is that like Nigerian writing in America, in English and in America, is experiencing such a, um, a renaissance or a naissance, I guess, um, right now, that there is potentially some sort of way in which if you are looking towards some sort of marginalized community um, within African, an African kind of worldview and cosmology, you can't go to Nigeria specifically. So you have to go somewhere else. Um, you have to figure out where, where we can go here to find a particular culture, a particular people um, to kind of, cast into this future. And so I think that the Himba um, of Namibia might play that role for her. And I'm guessing that there was some of these people have to be obviously different than everybody else around them. Yeah. And 
because the Himba have Ojize and that not more than just their skin color and at, at a certain point the skin color doesn't matter it's how they present themselves to the world which is a very different way needs mm-hmm. to separate them out and so I wonder if some of her um, writing and choosing the himba is in this way of we're not going to talk about skin color we're going to talk about otherness and even in africa this is a very other thing and i that's one of the reasons i brought this up because i feel in a certain way that the fact that she picked a different culture than her own uh, to be the focus of this as being the other that it almost strikes me as a certain element of exotification that she's going into this where she's purposely focusing on all the things that make them she's focusing on a culture that we're going to universally accept is different she's focusing on a culture that everyone's going to look at them and she could easily paint as being weird and other and stand out and i wonder if that's a little bit that comes across as being a little bit wrong that she's so focused on those on on picking a culture like that to have this role well i think I, I take your point, but I think that also, I, I think that it is intentional, that wrongness that you point out, because like by um, sort of moving to an other outside of um, herself and her own subject position, that we cannot necessarily read this as a sort of like, well, this is the author projecting on et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, that it is sort of different from that, that that weirdness is meant to be there. I agree. Well, here's another question then to continue from this, of where um, Benty's very much the center of this book in terms of her character, in terms of her, in terms of her exploring of the world, in terms of how her unique abilities and aspects resolve problems. Is she in some way, how much does she in some ways resemble the very stereotypical science fiction hero in terms of how she's doing this? She's coming from a very unique perspective. She's coming from a very unique culture. But she bears a lot of the tropes that have become hackneyed with respect to the all-powerful science fiction or fantasy hero. She had, When she starts this journey, she has in her backpack essentially all the tools she needs to win. That she uniquely, from her position, has the magical artifacts, the old you know, sword-in-the-stone kind of things that she's bringing with her that solve every problem that she confronts that it's not even necessarily her own ability. She's described as being universally gifted, whatever else, but her own abilities play little direct or obvious role in terms of solving the problem, other than a vague reference to these harmonizing powers of hers. Is is making this character some way, in some ways a stereotypical, I don't want to say necessarily wish fulfillment, but there's an element of that, but a stereotypical fantasy hero an intentional bit of trying to comment on the genre of we're putting a unique perspective on that classic genre or is it not intentional um i guess i would say that it's intentional but and this is something that i was going to bring up maybe next or something i wanted to talk about is the intended audience Mm -hmm. and so um and sarah i hope that we can continue being friends, but I have a, a bad feeling about what I'm about to say is Harry Potter is 
not a unique story in fantasy. It, you know, it's not, you know, at least the first couple of books aren't, the writing isn't particularly special. The, the characters aren't particularly special. The world isn't particularly special. And it's a well-played story, a well-played character, a well-played uh, enemy, everything else. But the audience was sort of the right place at the right time. And so I think... Parentheses, we're never doing this podcast or speaking to each other again. <laughs> End parentheses. At, that, that's why I started with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these tropes are what make Harry Potter and Star Wars good. Mm-hmm. And they they... Because we're coming at it from a knowledge of the genre and having read all of those other things and watched all of those other things. We're like, oh yeah, we've seen this a hundred times. But if the audience is not us, but people that haven't read sci-fi and haven't read fantasy and are interested in a cultural perspective that is now introducing them to sci-fi and fantasy, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I do think that, like, objectively, I don't think it's classified as this, but I, I do think it has a sort of young adult feel to it mm-hmm. um, and and a sort of young adult purpose to it. it. It is a lot of sort of finding your way in the world. It is a lot of... Um, trying to kind of navigate social circles, for example. Um, and so it feels like by taking a very like basic sci-fi fantasy plot um, arc, it is trying to put these other things into it to varying degrees of, dis- of, of success, um, but for an audience that is probably objectively not us. Yeah. yeah, and I guess I think that this is to sci-fi and fantasy what Black Panther is to superhero movies. Where, and it, it's, you know, the story is very similar, but culturally very different. And so if there's a, a an audience that that culture resonates with, that they can then identify with the main character and go through that same story it's it's what it's set out to be and it and then it's a much better and more resonating story and i think that is its main goal really is provide a new perspective and an entry point in the science fiction genre and even in a way that so many other people haven't had an opportunity to do someone that they can actually embody and follow and resonate with in a way that's they previously had been kind of denied. One of the things that's just difficult for me is you mentioned the ideas of Star Wars and Harry Potter, which are incredibly tropey, which are incredibly following the same classic themes. But one of the things that makes them so much more than the measure of their parts in that regard is that they come, they're set in such well-described, interesting, diverse, and creative universes that feel like real, that feel real and embodied and fully painted out um, in a way that this never attempts to do. This is so very much focused on this classic character archetype and what she is about and what her perspective is and what her background is. 
that it never really gets into how that interacts with the broader universe to make it unique. Yeah, I... Okay, so uh, let me put in my little disagreement with Spencer and then I'll let you, uh, Sarah, let you uh, finish with the second... Disagree with Spencer? Yeah, the second second punch, um, which is I think it's a lot has to do with the age and the where you are when you experience those things. Sure. Um, And because I will say that at the time that I watched other star wars movies rather than the first trilogy they i feel like they had what i would classify as similar problems as this story does but when i've talked to much younger people because i still interact with like undergrads now and so a decade and a half or more in in an age gap when they saw Star Wars stories that I think are, you know, have plot holes and, and, you know, I don't really like, they like them because they were at the age that that worked with, hadn't seen, you know, the original trilogy, etc, etc. And so I think that you're an our coloration of some of those stories that we refer back to and think are better than their parts are partly because of what we brought to it rather than what the story brought to, to the table. Which is, again, very much framing the story in the young adult genre, then. Yes. So, Sarah, knock him out. Yes. So, um, what I want to start with is just the idea that, like, um, to your point, and this is not a disagreement, but I think that, um, for me, what this novella kind of demonstrates is that the novella is really not a Korofor's form that she should be dealing with. Um, but at the same time, I also think that, you know, it's interesting to me that the kind of tropiness that we have been talking about within this novella, um, in some ways, it seems to me that, like, because it has taken it and put it, put it into a kind of um, worldview and com- cosmology that we are not familiar with or as familiar with, that that itself might be coloring how we are talking about it in some way. Um, and not to say that that's, that's bad, that's our experience, but like I think we need to be sort of cognizant of the fact that like the same type of tropiness in a different story, we might not be pushing back against in the same way. That's fair. Yeah, I I guess I kind of was, I guess I did not explicitly, I did not articulate it as well as you did, but that was one of the things that I was trying to express in my comments about the story. Yeah, and I I, I think, like, it was, it's it's there, I think that we have been trying to express that, um, but I think it's worth sort of stating explicitly that, um, you know, given our particular experience of like fantasy and sci-fi and the ways that we have read it um, and experienced those tropes. Like this is twisting them in a way that still feels tropey, but is potentially doing something else that is just not speaking to us in exactly the same way. Are, are we coming back to again that we may not just be the target audience? I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I also, but I think that part of the reason we're not the tar- target audience is that, like, 
Okorafor is not the target author for this type of fiction. Yeah, and which is a little bit surprising because I think one of the reasons that you chose this particular novella is it won both the Hugo and the Nebula. I know, and I really love some of her other works, and like I'm really disappointed that I chose this this thing for my inaugural (laughs) thing, and like I don't know, that's really. I just want a star on my paper, and I don't think I got it. I mean, but I think I think you chose a really interesting book to talk about, and an interesting uh, step into a broader theme and cultural perspective that we hadn't had so far in any of the works that we've discussed on the podcast so far and i mean you you said you've listened you've uh read a bunch of her other short stories and i think that's something that i'd like to do and get more of what she's written because there are a lot of things that she wrote and ideas that she had that were so good and part of my frustration with the story was I wanted to know more about them and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I the, one, one of the things that I really hope, I mean, I, I feel the way you both did about this novella, but like one of the things that I hope that came through in some of these kind of vignettes that were contained in the novella is just like what an extraordinary writer she can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scope of her imagina- imaginative possibilities in writing um, which I come, I think come through in, in different media more than they do here. Well, yeah, and I, I think that'd be a good thing to explore. Um, I guess one of the last things that you brought up as a ghost of podcast past was a uh, favorite scene. Yeah. Um, and I, I know I mentioned it like when we were talking about it earlier, but when she gets onto the ship, and the discussion of the ship and what it is and that it's this flying fish that they have these air pockets that they've grown this kudzu in and that allows them to breathe and it smells like a desert <laughs> summer where the these special flowers bloomed was such mm-hmm. a good evocative scene and then like immediate and, and and this is my frustration with the story because immediately then they're sort of like thrown into like some dormitory and it's like never brought up again. But that, that quick short scene was so good. Yeah. And I think some of her like descriptions in this novella particularly are very good. I mean, when, um, this massacre first occurs, the descript like she is so disoriented. Mm-hmm. So the massacre occurs essentially, and then you get one of these little um, breaks in in the text, and you kind of come back to her, kind of returning to some sort of consciousness. And her description of just her sensory understanding of what is going on in that moment is so incredible. I mean, she talks about um, the breathlessness. And the claustrophobia that she feels and um, the holding her breath and the smell of the blood, but it's also mixed with the smell of the food that has been in this cafeteria. Like, it's a whole thing that she is describing. And I think those types of descriptions are, like, really point at the possibilities of Okorafor's writing that get more played out elsewhere. Spencer? For me, one of the parts of the novel I liked best were some of the earliest descriptions of going into the uh, the uh, the uh, Himba people culture in terms of she's describing the various 
aspects of who they are and what they embody and what they stand for and what tokens of those that she carries with her. As when she's originally going out on her journey and she's thinking about what she's leaving behind and she's thinking about whatever people are bringing with her. I thought that was really well described. I thought that was some of the moments where they most got into her head and I felt with the character about what she's going through, but what values she's, that are conflicting in her. And she's going off and setting off on her journey. And as we're going through that, if each step of the way, when she's going to the spaceport and she's arriving on the ship, there are some wonderful descriptions of how she's interacting with the world, about how the world is judging her as, she, as she's first setting out on the uh, quest she set for herself. And I was very much with the novel at that point. Um, I, this is something I just don't, I'm curious, this is just a question to ask. A lot of this book seems symbolic. A lot of this book seems to be stand-in and commenting about various things in our own world, the way a lot of good science fiction does. What do we feel the jellyfish people represent then, if that's the case? Listen, I'm gonna say that the dedication of the book makes clear that the jellyfish people are jellyfish people. This is an 11 year old's <laughs> plot, but plot development here. No. So actually at the, so in the acknowledgements, that's what a core four says. Um, but in the dedication, pull it up, actually. which I'm trying to get back to, um, because I've moved on to something else, but in the dedication at the very, very beginning, she says, that um, it is dedicated to the little blue jellyfish I saw swimming in the Khalid Lagoon that sunny day in Sharjah, United Arab Emirates. There you are. Maybe she just wanted to hmm. talk about jellyfish. I think she wanted to talk about jellyfish. Um, and so to speak to your like her interactions and your favorite scene, the amount of discomfort that I felt when the Kush women were like touching her hair and oh, talking yeah. about her. I think she did an incredibly good job there. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that like that scene is emblematic of some scenes in some of her other writing uh, that are really kind of dealing with this um, ethnic divide and ethnic sort of stereotyping and mythicization of kind of what is going on outside of the bounds of your own experience that she does really, really well. Well, uh, we'll have to read more of it, uh, more of her work to find out. Um, it sound, so we sort of discussed beforehand that uh, you were going to suggest some of her short stories so we can really get a sense of like what her writing is like because this might not have been the best uh, offering of hers, at least to to get into like what she's really good at in terms of her evocative writing um and i'll put those on with a recommendation for next or our next episode does that seem good with you guys yeah i would like to take another swing um at, at a core four and something that is more in my wheelhouse of what i have read of her what would you recommend well, so I have been um, simultaneously with Binti, I've been reading a collection of her short stories called Kabu Kabu. Um, and what I really want to recommend, I'm going to say kind of a couple of things from this collection that get more towards, instead of her sci-fi, more towards her magical realism. Um, because I, like I've, I've said several times during this episode, that, like I think that that's, for me, where her strength lies. And, you know, the idea that um, that kind of like denizen of uh, magical realism 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez Mm. said that the sort of surrealism from the reality or the surrealism comes from the reality of Latin America where Okorafor is best is where her stories come from the sort of realism of Nigeria and then they become that surrealism to describe the actual situation on the ground. And so I've got a couple of stories that I think really kind of get to that from Kabu Kabu. And so there is what, what I'm going to suggest is there's a very, very short kind of, I guess it's a story, but it's a, it's an introduction to the um, collection as a whole called the magical Negro that sort of sets up what the project is. I think it's a couple of pages. I think it's worth reading to kind of get the sense of what is going on. Um, And then, of course, I would recommend the title story, Kabu Kabu. But then I'm going to go a couple of different places, um, one of which is called Spider the Artist, which is a little bit more sci-fi than some of the other things. The third, I guess, guess at this point is The Ghastly Bird. And then the last one that I want to read is The Baboon War. Cool. Um, And Sarah, I'm going to make you send those to me so I can put that in uh, and recommend that to our readers in the post. And so I will absolutely do that. Yep. Remember without uh, having having to listen to this again and write it down. (laughs) (laughs) You Um, can text me. We have means of communication. That that is true. And then um, we'll probably do maybe another set of short stories or novella or something like that. But I wanted to uh, prep our listeners mm-hmm. um, that we are going to do uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil soon. Um, and also The Fifth Season by N.K. Jameson. Um, and so give people lots of time to check those out. Um, and hopefully read through them, listen to them. Um, I've listened to both of them and they're both really good listens. Um, and I'm sure they're also good reads and, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to give people some time, uh, to catch up on those while we do some shorter novellas. Cause we can always talk at length about things that aren't as quite as lengthy as evidenced. Yes. As, as evidenced by, uh, <laughs> by this episode and, and uh, pretty much all of the novellas that we've ever talked about. <laughs> yeah, I think at this point we've probably talked about this one for almost as long as it took me to read it. We've had, we've had, a, lot of thing, we've had a lot of things to go into. Uh, anything else, anybody else we would like to talk about before we finish up? Um, I think I'm good. Yeah, I think we've pretty well covered it. Um, thank you uh, for joining us. And Spencer, you can, uh, I'll let you do the closing. I'm not going to do the closing because I can never remember all the various shows that we do. BJ, that's your job. <laughs> uh, so um, you can get uh, this podcast and all of our other offerings at mangumtalks.com. You have GOT Got Questions with Spencer and Lee, who have been reviewing uh, season or season one of Game of Thrones and uh, in anticipation of the upcoming final season season eight of game of thrones which uh they'll hopefully be covering as it comes out then there is mangum hoops with lee and levi 
Baxter, the be- his best friend, the best man at his wedding. There is also Whiskey on the Weekends, where we get into day drinking and tell stories of our times in under- undergrad and generally have fun and get into all kinds of trouble while day drinking and trying some new whiskeys. Um, as well as hopefully some more uh, new offerings coming your way. Uh, there's a podcast in the works between uh, myself and Lee doing uh, reviewing stand-up comedy acts on Netflix. And uh, you can find all of those uh, on Apple iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as our subreddit, uh, Mangum Talks. And if you want to tell us anything, comments on the books we read, suggestions, or anything else, you can click contact us at the top right of mangumtalks.com, and I'll read all of those and pass them on to uh, my lovely co-hosts. Well, until then, folks, we have our reading material for next week. As we are reading the same author, we are very much looking forward to your comments, your questions, your discussion points you'd like us to go into. Um, and we can, please put post those on Mangum Talks, on the subreddit, or anywhere else where we can find the material. Until then, we look forward to you reading with us, and we look forward to talking about it next week. Till then, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and read something good.